Well, we are continuing on this evening with our study of the book of Ruth, but I remind you that even though we are studying Ruth and though we are certainly considering the chapters, the verses, and the story about Ruth, our actual emphasis is a little bit different. It's really Naomi, but of course, to tell the story of Naomi, you have to also tell the story of Ruth. It's just that so often Naomi is really not the person who is the subject of our investigation, but If I were looking for a title, I may have said this last week, I'm not sure, but if I were looking for a title for this entire series, I would actually call it Naomi, a a study in bitterness. So you remember last week we looked at this first message in chapter number one, and we saw there the bad things about bitterness. We saw the hammer blows as Naomi lost her home, her husband, and eventually with the loss of her two boys, also all hope. And then we hear those rending heart cries that we find in verse 13, verse 20, and 21, all of which seem to pour out anger and despair and uh, frustration with the Lord. But thank God that's only the first chapter in the story. And thank God as we get to chapter number two, we can consider a message like you see the title here this evening, Recovering from Bitterness. It all starts here in chapter number two. And what we want to look into to tonight really is what kicks this off because there is a there is a singular truth that I want to concentrate on tonight that God uses mightily to jumpstart this process in the life of Naomi. But as the chapter starts, there is still that suffocating cloud of bitterness that hangs over her until what seems to be a random event What seems to be something that happens by chance actually turns out to be a divine appointment. And what I'm referring to, of course, is what we read in verse number three. I hope you'll take note of this for just a moment. It says here, don't you love the the language of human expression? Because that's how this is put to us. It says in verse three, so she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers and she happened. Uh, You can just kind of maybe see those air quotes. She happened. So if you read this in the King James Version, it's even more quaint and perhaps even more uh, powerful when it says, Her hap was to light upon a portion of the field belonging to Boaz. Well, she doesn't really know anything about this, but God knows everything about it. And as the story moves, we find out that Naomi figures out very quickly by the time you get to verses 19 and 20 this is no random event this is no happenstance god is intimately involved with all of this and so really the uh, the journey that we find here in chapter two we're going to we're going to see it unfold in three steps it's amazing and and i want to what i want to do tonight is to invite you to go with me and for us to just accompany naomi in this journey so that as it unfolds this truth that awakens her hope again in life and in the Lord may also be a blessing to us tonight. So this journey starts out, first of all, with the despair. And then it moves to surprise and finally to hope. Hope is rekindled in her heart and life. And as we trace it, we are going to find a very powerful spiritual truth that begins this process of healing. And if you'll pardon me tonight, I want to call it something that I think speaks to the point, but probably you haven't heard it phrased this way before, and that is forgotten providence. 
I characterize it that way because I think probably, particularly in an audience like this, everyone is at least familiar with the doctrine of Christian providence. We realize that God is in control. There is more to it really than that, especially when you think about the fact that there we know a lot of people who are in control and they don't seem to be doing such a great job. It's not enough just to know that God is in control. It's necessary to go beyond that and know the God who is in control and to know that he can take any event in life, no matter how, how untoward it may seem to us at the outset, no matter how negative, and cause that actually to be something that works out for our good and his glory. And how can it be any better told, really, than it is told to us in a verse in the New Testament that probably everyone here knows as a memory verse, when we are told, and this is something Paul says, this is something you can know. We know that all things, not just the things that look pleasant, not just the things that Naomi was thinking about when she said, you know, it used to be back in the old days that things were pleasant. But then all those things happened to her, and that verse continues, all things work together for good to them that love God and to those who are the called according to his purpose. But wouldn't you have to confess tonight that sometimes we let that get away from us? Sometimes we're overcome by all of the the problems and difficulties and adversities that come our way. And that's exactly where this story opens as we consider the first scene and the first stop in the life of Naomi. It's really essentially where it was at the end of chapter 1, and that is it's characterized by despair. You see, Naomi is still... Is still uh, basically in the grips of this spiritual stupor, this spiritual fog. Really, I would go so far as to characterize it as a spiritual paralysis. It's it's a winter barrenness and deadness that characterizes her life. It's as if whatever has a hold of her, and of course we know ultimately that's bitterness, it's as if whatever has a hold of her has sapped whatever spiritual vitality and energy away from her. Folks, I just want to pause here tonight and tell you something. That's scary. It's scary to think about the fact that something can creep into your life and remove from you all the hope, all the vigor, all the spiritual vitality and leave you basically a spiritual basket case unable to really do very much at all. And why do I say this? Well, because as we look in the story, whose initiative is it to go and glean? It's not Naomi's. And this is rather curious because I hope I can uh, help you to see this evening that This is actually the first phase, as it's revealed to us, uh, as a a rather strange role reversal. And what do I mean by this? Well, what I mean by this is, is the older person is Naomi. She's really the person who ought to be the leader. And not only is she the older person who ought to be the leader, but you know what? This is Naomi's home. This is Naomi's town. These are Naomi's people. And none of this is true for Ruth. She's not only the younger woman who ought to be all by all rights looking up to the older woman for leadership, inspiration, and guidance, but she's a foreigner, as she points out later in the story. She's a Moabite woman. She doesn't know anything about Bethlehem and only what she's learned and heard through Naomi about the land of Israel, but yet it's her initiative. It's almost like if you can just sort of picture it in your mind this way, these people didn't have much. It's obvious that they, they were still in a position of being very poor. So it's, it's kind of like if you're Ruth, you're sitting there and you're kind of looking and every day the cupboard gets a little bit more bare. There's a few less cans of beans. There's less in the refrigerator. 
you know, most people in America don't have that problem. Most of the time, the problem that we have is you open the refrigerator and you can't find what you're looking for because there's too much in there. And by the time you find it, uh, well, okay, that's a lost cause. But it's almost like that. It's like she's thinking to herself, and finally she says to herself, why don't I just go and glean? And it isn't Naomi who points that out. Now, here's something interesting. It's, it's clear that Ruth is, Ruth is aware of the privilege of gleaning. Yet there's a really delicate balance here because she's going to go out, and she's the one proposing this. She's going to go out and glean, but yet she's not an Israelite. Well, we can look in the background of this in the Old Testament. So these verses from Leviticus will help us to become acquainted with what, what custom is being observed here because it was written in the law, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap the field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. Verse 10 says, you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. But again, there's this delicate balance, and we can go back to this here for just a moment because... I can point out to you all through the chapter. So in verse 10 of chapter 2, also in verse 2, also in verse 6, it's like the writer goes out of his way, and even Ruth refers to herself as a stranger, but the writer goes out of his way to keep reminding us. And by the way, I hope when you read this chapter, one of the things that you get out of it is this, whoever wrote this book is a consummate storyteller. It's just like this has you on the edge of your seat the whole way through. But he keeps intentionally referring to her as Ruth the Moabitess or the Moabite woman. Well, so she's got that strike against her, but there's actually another strike that she has against her. Look at this. Because it's one thing to be a foreigner. And we can say it should be the same for foreigners as it is for us, but we know in practice it often doesn't work that way. And if you have poor Israelites and then you have someone else coming in on your field, it's kind of like, oh, who's that person? What are they doing here? By all rights, the poor of Bethlehem should have access to this first, but she's got another strike against her, and that is this background of the Ammonites and the Moabites. So how about this from Deuteronomy 23 and 20, uh, verses 3 and 4? No Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord even to the tenth generation. None of them may enter into the assembly of the Lord forever. Why was that? Because they did not meet you with bread and with water on the way. When you came out of Egypt, and because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Beor, from Pethor of Mesopotamia, to curse you. So do you begin to get a little feel for this? This takes some gumption, really. And I take you back to what I said about the fact that in Ruth chapter 3, she's referred to as a virtuous woman. This takes some real gumption, really, on her part, because she's got the strike against her of being a foreigner. What kind of sentiment is she going to experience when she goes out there to glean? But then she has the double strike of her Moabite background, what is she going to encounter that's kind of magnified by that background? But here again, here's a second thought. Naomi, Naomi seems to be so numb that she also hasn't considered not just the gleaning, the provision for gleaning that she could well have said to Ruth, hey, we can glean, get on out there, help us out here. Just do that. Because she's gripped in this spiritual paralysis, this numbness. But then there's something else. It seems like she's, she doesn't even think of the possibilities that are inherent in the kinsmen that she has to know are in that place. And it actually turns out that there are two. There's Boaz, and of course there's the unnamed kinsman who appears later in the story and 
maybe not quite so favorable of a light. But here's something that's quite interesting. You may have caught this in the reading. There's a difference, and this is brought out to us by, by the addition of this detail. In verse number 1, it simply refers to Elimelech as a relative or a kinsman. Notice it says here, now Naomi had a relative. That's all it says. It doesn't say anything about him being a redeemer. But when you get down to verse number 20, then you'll notice the man is a close relative, so he's called a relative again. But then she adds, one of our redeemers. And in the Old Testament, this is the Hebrew word goel, which is the word for a redeemer. So she knows this because now she's telling Ruth about this when she hears the man's name, but it's almost like up until this point, none of this has really dawned on her. And you say to yourself, what in the world has gotten to Naomi? Well, that's the scary part. Because that's what bitterness can do to us. It just has gripped her in a blinding fog, numbness, and paralysis, if not blindness. Sort of reminds me of a story that I heard about this little old lady. I, I love these little old lady stories. But the little old lady, she needed to go across a street, and she was a bit pensive. She walked up to the curb because there was quite a bit of traffic coming from the left, coming from the right. And she was very nervous about the thing. And right about the time she was having to figure out what was she going to do, this man walked right up to her and he said, may I cross over with you? And she was relieved and she says, certainly, and she put her arm out, he took it, and they started across the street. Well, this journey across the street wasn't anything like what she was thinking it was going to be at all because they started to kind of zig and zag and the traffic was zooming past and finally they made it across the street. They got to the other side and rather Tartly and with some displeasure, she looked at him. She said, what's the matter of you, with you? She said, you, you could have gotten us killed out there. You walk like you are a blind man. He said, I am. That's why I asked you if I could cross over with you. <laughs> well, nothing like a little chuckle for us to kind of look at ourselves and see ourselves in the mirror, isn't it? I mean, here's the person that the woman was looking to thinking that he would be the guide and the leader, and the help, and he nearly gets them killed. And this is kind of where Naomi is. And so there is one, before we leave this first stop on the journey here in chapter number two, there's one little detail that we just have to look at before we go, because everything I've said so far really just casts into a greater light of irony this statement that Naomi made back in chapter one when that that bitter cry of hers when she says in verse 21, it's the last one, she says, I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Well, look, folks, I said this to you last week. You're not going to find me rushing in to judge Naomi. I don't know. I, I just hope I could do better than what I've pointed out to you in some instances that she did if those events were to happen in my, my life, but I don't even want to think about that. It's a waste of my time to think about it because you don't have dying grace until it's time to die, so I'm not going to worry about those things until I'm presented with them, but if you ask me, I'd say I'm a big coward. That stuff scares me. But she's got this totally wrong, and this is the whole point. See, she's gripped in this in, she, it's just like this, the, the bitterness has just sapped it all out of her so she can't even see her way forward. 
And she's lost sight of the fact that she's had a rough time. There's no question about that. But she has not come back empty. God always has his compensating blessings. God may take something away over here, but he has something over here that he compensates that with. And God is always doing that in our lives. Unfortunately, she didn't begin to see this until later, but you will notice, and I think you're familiar enough with the story of Ruth to remember this, that when we get to the end of the book, it's the women who point out to Naomi, she's better to you than seven sons. Well, you probably wouldn't have said that right now to her, but as time goes on and the healing process takes place, she's in a position to see what God had really done for her Even though her sons were gone and her husband was gone, she had Ruth. Well, that's enough about that. Let's get to the second thing, and that's surprise. Now, this starts really getting good. And I, I really get excited about this story because I think we all sort of like surprises, at least pleasant ones. But, you know, even though Naomi is really what I want to work towards in talking about surprise, let's talk about something else first. Naomi isn't the only one to be surprised here because Ruth is the first one to get a surprise. Now, I've spent this time telling you the things that might have been sort of intimidating to her. She's a foreigner. She's also a Moabite woman. She goes out to glean in this field. Well, her first fears are perhaps bedded down when she gets to this place. She doesn't know she's at Boaz's field. And if she did, she wouldn't have known who Boaz was. But she gets to this field and they're accommodating enough. Whatever she said to them, they didn't run her off. They didn't give her a hard time. And she's out there gleaning in the field. And who knows how long she'd been there, but probably not too terribly long before Boaz, who's kind of watching over things since it's his operation, comes to the field. And I'm sure he notices that the work is progressing and that nobody's lollygagging around and that type of thing. But it's not very long before he notices something else. And so look with me at verse number 5. And it says here, Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? I'm telling you folks, that statement is like Rice Krispies. You add milk and it snaps and crackles and pops. I mean, the old boy noticed. And uh, that's why I say this this is really the touch of a consummate storyteller. It's just so human that you can get right into the story. And old Boaz, we don't even know if he was ever married before or not, but he walks up there, everything's going great, and then he sees Ruth. Who's that? He just happened to notice, just happened to notice. But as things progress, he talks to her and he says, here now, you know, you've come to the field here and you're, I'm going to just improvise a little bit here. You're welcome here, no problem at all. You can continue to glean in my field and... Not only that, you get thirsty. Don't, don't worry about that either. You can just go over here to the, where the young men have drawn the cool water. And remember, David wanted that water from the well in Bethlehem. So it must have been good stuff. Anyway, the young men were in charge of that. They said, you can go over there. Don't, nobody's going to bother you. I've told these guys just, you're fine here. You can leave you alone. And talk about surprise. She says to him in verse 10, well, it bowls her over. Literally. Because it says, she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said, why have I found favor? Now, don't miss the word favor here, because we encountered it actually earlier when Ruth proposed this whole enterprise. 
She said in verse 2, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. Well, see, the ESV translates it favor, which is perfectly fine because it's a word that has a range of meaning, and that's, that's a fine translation for it. But, you know, it's the regular Old Testament word for grace. And Ruth is quite cognizant of the fact that grace has been extended to her. She went out so worried that this was going to be a a potential problem as a foreigner and as a Moabite woman. And instead, she receives a welcome in that place. And she just, what a shock it is to her. What a surprise. She says to Boaz, why have I found grace? Why have I found favor that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? What another surprise she gets when Boaz says to her, well, it's not like I haven't looked into this. It's not like I don't know something about who you are and what you've done for your mother-in-law. And you know something? The God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge, will reward and repay you for what you have done. I'm sure those words must have meant a great deal to her, but this uh, interlude for now ends and things get back to kind of normal until it's mealtime. Then Boaz starts talking to her again. Verse number 14, Boaz says, you can come on over here and eat with us. Well, just what do you think she had brought for lunch? Or do you think she had brought anything for lunch? I don't know. Must not have been what Boaz had to offer, though, because he provides for her some of the roasted grain, the bread, and says, you come here and can dip your dip your morsel in the wine with us. And so she does that, and Whatever he gives to her is enough that she's got more than she's used to having for a lunch. Even out there working like that, she stows some away. She's got something in mind for this doggy bag that she's going to take home. And Boaz then, as she goes back to start gleaning again, he talks to his servants again and he says, just let her, let her glean even among the sheaves. In fact, you can either, you can even let some of the I like the way the King James phrases that, handfuls of purpose. You can let some of that drop too, and don't even bother to be concerned about it. You kind of have to wonder what some of these servants were thinking too, but anyway, they were fine with that. Everything went well. But that surprise, as far as Ruth's part is concerned, you talk about the real surprise comes next. I mean, I like, again, the, the storyteller and how he tells us this story Because we get to verse 18 and it says, she took it up. Well, what did she take up? It says that she was able to come home with an ephah. I'm sure that means very little unless you have a footnote on it or unless you go and look it up. But here's what I'm going to tell you. That's like coming home with a three-fifths of a bushel. So if you've been anywhere to buy apples or anything like that lately, you know what a bushel is. You, You want to know what that weighs in barley? about 30 pounds. I mean, folks, she's coming home with a lot of food, a lot more than they were used to having. She's got food enough for a lot of days. And so then the, t- the writer tells us, her mother-in-law, she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw. So here's my next question. Why do you think Naomi was in a position to see it? And I can't help but wonder if 
in spite of all of this spiritual fog and paralysis, as the day wore on, I think she couldn't help but think about Naomi, I mean Ruth. And I think she's thinking to herself, if I let her go out there, I hope everything's okay. I hope she hasn't been accosted because she mentions that later. You go to another field, you might, you might be accosted. I hope she hasn't been accosted. I hope it's going well. I hope no one has spoken unkind words or harsh words to her. And so this little touch is almost like the touch that you have in the, the parable of the prodigal son where the old man sees his son coming a long ways off. Well, why did he see him coming a long ways off? Because he kept going out there every day looking. Will this be the day? Will this be the day that he comes back? And I think as that that day began to draw to a close that Naomi maybe had gotten up out of her lazy boy, which she probably sat in for most of the day, and walked out on that porch and said, you know, I better keep a watch for her. And when she sees her walking up with this three-fifths of a bushel of barley grain, and then she not only sees that, but, but Ruth's got something else, and she's, what in the world is that? Well, I've, I've got a little something here for your supper. And I, I, I think that Naomi is blown away. It's like she can't believe this. Well, this is a great thing, folks. Could I ask you to park with me here for just a moment? And think about how good God is and how he delights at times to surprise his children to show us and prove to us just how good he is. You know, my wife and I were talking a little bit yesterday and we were just going over the events of our lives since we moved here. And we just kept talking about, you know, this happened and that happened and God has just been so good and we just were sort of recounting those things. Well, I wasn't thinking about telling you that because it hadn't happened yet when I was working on this message, but I was thinking about telling you this. As I remember back, oh, I don't know, eight, ten years ago, seems like, maybe it was a little more, I don't know, but it was after Sunday church. I have to believe probably morning church because that's when this woman was typically there. But I went to one of the back entrances and stood there to talk to people as they went out after the services over that morning, and then... Usually what I would do when all that was done is, is if there's anybody left, I'd just get up and just sort of meander around the, the congregation and talk to people, people who might be left. And I walked up to this lady. And I asked her how she was doing, and she said, fine. And we, ex- we exchanged a few pleasantries. And she, she said, Pastor, let me ask you a question. She said, uh, you got any project you got, you got going? She said, you, you got any project you need a little money for? Well, I knew she wasn't talking about a church project. That much I I picked up right away. I knew she was asking me if I needed something for anything. Well, to say that I was surprised is just a little bit of an understatement because this was a, a very humble woman. They didn't have much. I've been to their home before, and they just didn't have a lot. Never really mattered to me. I knew she loved the Lord. I knew she loved church. She was always a blessing to me. That, that really wasn't important, but they didn't have much. So when she asked me that, it's like I didn't know what to say, so I've kind of learned when I don't know what to say, not to say something, try not to say something stupid. So I just said, well, I said, tell you what, um, let, me, let me think about it and let me pray about it. And I was really sincere about that because it had surprised me. I knew it had surprised me, and I, I, I just was afraid that if I told her, well, no, nothing comes to mind, that would be, a, I'd go home and kick myself and think, That was really dumb. So I just said to her, 
let me, let me, let me think about it. Would you give me a few days? Well, I'd hardly gotten out of the church house than it hit me. It hit me that I'd been thinking about the fact that, you know, behind our house, there was a privacy screening that we just needed to replace because the people who put that there before we bought that property, it was just some, some skimpy little pine trees. And after a period of time, you know, those things, some of them I had to cut down because they, they worried me they were too close to the house and they could blow over. And it just wasn't what it needed to be. And I, I had this in mind a project, but I knew it was going to cost some money and I didn't have enough money for it. So I made a few inquiries and found out. And so I, I went back to her and I said, yeah, I said, I got the answer to your question. I said, I need to, re- I, I do have a project. I need to replace this up at the house. And I said, I, I got some information on it. And, you know, if, if you want, I can share that with you. I was a little bashful because I, I did call a guy that I trusted. And I said, you know, what's, what's something the deer are going to leave alone? Well, that's really not anything if they get hungry enough. But there are some things they will wait till the last resort. So I had my choice made and I knew how much is this going to cost? He gave me a price. It was, it was around $2,000 or a little bit more. I'm thinking, how am I going to go back and tell her this? I, I, you know, I, she said, well, how much is it going to cost? I said, uh, it's, Nancy, it's, it's going to cost a little money. I said, probably around $2,000. She said, fine, I'll get you a check. I, I found out later that she had come in either into a a small inheritance or else someone had a life insurance policy. And she, God put that on her heart. And I, folks, I'm telling you, I just, so many things like this have happened in life. Have I had the lumps? Have I had the hardships? Have I had the adversities? Oh yeah, I can tell you about those, but I'd rather tell you about these. Because this is what God delights to do for his children. Right about the time that this about envelops us and swallows us, and we have forgotten God's providential dealings in our lives, God pops up with something to prove it to us again. And it's usually exceeding abundantly more than we could ask or think. Which brings us to the last part of this story, and that is hope. That's sort of what this whole thing is building towards. You see, something really happens when she hears the name of Boaz. It's like somehow she's she's shaken out of this spiritual lethargy, this spiritual blindness. She says, and this is another of these consummate questions that's asked. She said, where have you gleaned today? And her mother-in-law says it in verse number 19. Where did you glean today? I don't mean to keep laboring a, a reference, but... I can't help but remember this text because the way that's phrased in the King James Version is, where hast thou gleaned today? And even though it's probably been 40 years ago, some of you will remember this name. I can remember Harold Seitler. Right here in Greenville, Tabernacle Baptist Church, preached a message on that very text. But he had that booming preaching voice. Where hast thou been today? You've heard that before. I've never forgotten that sermon. I've never forgotten that sermon. I can remember a few others he preached too. But this is a great question. I mean, she sees this stuff and she knows right away. This is when it clicks on in her mind. What turned out, what started out as what seemed to be something random turned out to be something divinely ordained. She says, where did you glean today? And her daughter-in-law says, well, the man's name with whom 
I worked or I wrought today is Boaz. Ching. This light goes on. And I know that this light goes on because if you look at what comes out of her mouth, now remember, everything that we've seen to this point come out of her mouth really isn't that great. You have those three heart cries in chapter number 1, verse 13, verse 20, verse 21. They're, they're cries of really that reflect despair, anger, bitterness, even directed against the Lord. Even when we hear from her the few words that we hear at the opening of the chapter, go my daughter to the field, it's just kind of, yeah, if you want to. Nothing really much going on. But look what happens now. Verse 19, her mother-in-law said to her, where have you gleaned today? Where have you worked? It's like she's figured something out. Something's going on here. Look at this word. Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man with whom I work today is Boaz. And what does she say? Oh, Boaz, huh? He's a close relative of ours. In fact, a goel, a redeemer. Well, I guess the question is, why didn't she think of that at the outset of the chapter? Well, she didn't think of it at the outset of the chapter because she was gripped with this blindness and this paralysis and this spiritual numbness. But now what's happened is the realization has come to her. You know something? God is not, has not forsaken us. God is not AWOL. God is here. God is near. And most importantly, God is working. How is God working? Three quick thoughts. First of all, God is working mysteriously. And you can see this on two fronts. First of all, Ruth knew nothing of Boaz, right? I mean, she went out to glean. No one had told her about Boaz. No one had even said anything so far as we know about there being any relatives or any... She's more nervous that it's going to turn out to be something not so good. But not only does Ruth know nothing of Boaz, but Naomi knows nothing of Boaz's quiet interest in that he's followed this whole thing as it unfolds. We know that from verse number 11 when Boaz tells Ruth, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. So this is not quite what Naomi has envisioned. This is not quite the deal where she's thinking nobody cares, God has forsaken me, no one even knows how desperate my circumstances are. She didn't even realize that God had already appointed someone to inquire into her circumstances in the beginning stages of what God's plan that he wanted to work out. And all this was going on sight unseen behind the scenes where no one could see it, but God was working. I rather like what someone said about the word coincidence. They said coincidence is just when God chooses to remain anonymous. So you could call it anonymously or you could call it mysteriously, but that doesn't mean that God is not at work. In fact, 
How do you know? How do I know that God isn't at work right now? Right now, preparing something for you. Right now, preparing something for this church. He just hasn't seen fit to reveal exactly what that is yet, but never mistake the fact that God is at work. But he not only works mysteriously, he works generously. You ever think about the fact that she could have stumbled out there, not only into the field of somebody who would have been unfriendly, but she could have landed where that other relative was. He was of a different bolt of cloth. He wasn't quite so generous, if you recall, in the story. He was of a different spirit, as I've phrased it here, and we won't take time to look at those verses because we'll get there soon enough. Instead, her hap was, it just so happened that she landed at Boaz's field, and did he have any particular qualifications to be the answer to her prayer? He, he really did. He had three. He was wealthy. That's where you see that. Look at verse 1. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's. This is the storyteller telling us this, not Naomi. Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man. You'll find that other versions will translate that, a mighty man of wealth. And so if you're talking about Gideon, it's a mighty man of valor. Very same expression, but there's nothing in the text that would lead us to believe the reference here has anything to do so much with Valor, at least not in the military sense, but it has everything to do with the fact that Boaz has what it takes to be this kinsman redeemer and to do so in a generous fashion. He's a spiritual man. We get that impression when, just remember the days in which this story was set, right? The story of Ruth is set in the days of the what? The judges. Not a particularly spiritual time in the life of Israel. But yet, when this man comes up to his field, the first thing he says in verse number 4 to his workers is, the Lord be with you. There's no indication that this is the stuff of fluff. It's more that this is just Boaz. This is just who Boaz is. And so they respond in kind because they've learned Boaz and they've learned the type of man he is and they say, the Lord bless you. But it's not just talk. I said it's not the stuff of fluff because it goes on and his actions are matched by his words. This is precisely what we see borne out in the whole rest of the chapter. And there's finally one other thing. God is at work not only mysteriously and generously, but God is at work faithfully. Naomi says something about this when we get to verse number 20. And she says, There is a close relative of ours, I'm sorry, let's back up earlier in the verse. Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord whose, and notice the next word is kindness. Now, you've heard a lot in this church about this word kindness, and you've heard it for years from Pastor Whitcomb, and you've heard it from many other speakers as well. And Matt was actually telling us a little bit about it, didn't kind of ran out of time, but this word in the Old Testament, this word hesed, that, Really, the problem that the translator encounters when you come to this word is, is that we really don't have a word in English that quite captures everything that's involved in this word. Because it has nuances of a relationship, it has nuances of loyalty in that relationship, so it's often applied within the context of Israel or the person's covenant relationship. 
where you might think of it as like a loyal love, but it also has nuances of kindness and long-suffering. And so it's translated here kindness, but it's this word that has at the very heart of its concept faithfulness. And more often than not, you'll find the ESV translates this steadfast love. I've already told you I wouldn't want to be the translator when you come to this particular term. For me, I like another translation a little bit better. I like unfailing love a little bit better because I think it calls more to the attention of the fact that when you're talking about God and sinners, we we often give God a lot of reasons not to, to love us, but he loves us anyway. God sticks, he's the friend who sticks closer than a brother. And so she says to this, I see God's kindness. I see how God has never forsaken me, even though I doubted that, even though I despaired of that, yet God hasn't forsaken me after all. You know, I grew up along the coast of South Carolina, so I'm sure you know this piece, but if you'll indulge me, I love it. One night I dreamed a dream. As I was walking along the beach with my Lord, across the sky flashed scenes of my life. From each scene, I noticed two sets of footprints in the sand, one belonging to me and one to my Lord. After the last scene of my life flashed before me, I looked back at the footprints in the sand. I noticed that at many times along the path of my life, especially at the very lowest and saddest times, there was only one set of footprints. This really troubled me, so I asked the Lord about it. Lord, you said once I decided to follow you, you'd walk with me all the way. But I noticed that during the saddest and most troublesome times of my life, there were only one set of footprints. I don't understand why, when I needed you the most, you would leave me. He whispered, My precious child, I love you, and will never leave you, never, ever, during your trials and testings. When you saw only one set of footprints, it was then that I carried you. Now he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you, so that we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what man shall do unto me. So what happened to Naomi? I think, if we're honest, we say, as yes, it's happened to all of us at one time or another. When some event has come into our life, like kudzu. Have you ever noticed how you can be driving along and see the outline of something smothered in kudzu? What's underneath of that might just be a, a decent bush. But you can't see it. It's just all smothered with kudzu. Only the hint of the outline there. And has this happened to me and to you sometimes in our lives where we've been just so overwhelmed, so overcome, that we have succumbed to bitterness, to despair, when we've lost sight of who God is and how full of love he is for his children And once this bitterness in the life of Naomi is in full bloom, like the kudzu, it obscured the truth that she had known since her childhood. That's forgotten providence.
And the key to the power of the truth of providence is exactly, there's a little key to this in verse 12. We close here. When he says to Ruth, a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Or as it's also translated, under whose wings you have come to trust. The key to the power of forgotten providence is when we have trust rekindled in God's unfailing and when we yield to that truth in the spite of whatever it is that we may face. Still, my soul, be still. Do not forsake the truth you have learned in the beginning. Wait upon the Lord, and hope will rise as stars appear when day is dimming. God, you are my God, and I will trust in you and not be shaken. Lord of peace, renew a steadfast spirit within me to rest in you alone. To rest in you alone.